Scripture reading today will be from Jeremiah 25.4 and Acts 7. Um, <clears throat> you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Acts 7, 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were engaged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and astounded him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling into his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we press forward in our series in Acts, looking at the early church, its disciples, and the challenges that were presented to them as they were charged to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so today's passage concludes the outreach of the ministry to Jerusalem and Judea. Sort of, you know, from this point on, the home court advantage for the disciples of Jesus Christ is no longer happening in the book of Acts. And the end of this ministry in the Jewish territory ends with what many might consider to be a tragedy, uh, a hindrance to the church. It ends with Stephen, this Hellenist Jew who gave his life to serving marginalized widows in mercy ministry. He loses his life to a mob of religious leaders who should have known better. And in this passage today, we are going to be unpacking, you know, what does it mean for the Christian to stand both courageously and compassionately in the face of sure and certain suffering. It's about how this act itself advances the gospel contrary to hindering it and, and connects us to Jesus in a deep and meaningful way that, that transforms what the goal of life is and what we live for. So uh, before we begin, can we pray together? Uh, Father, we, we pray that your spirit would fill your people just as it did Stephen, with a deep and abiding love for truth and even for our enemies, to speak it boldly and with compassion, even in the face of death, to love our enemies and proclaim Christ with our words, our prayers, and our lives. So may you speak now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, so last week, we left the church in a place where they were dealing with the issue of injustice from within the church and in pursuing reconciliation from the forces that would try to tear the church from within across all these dividing lines, race, class, gender. Uh, the church, in pursuing the ministry of justice and the ministry of the word, brought, contrary to, you know, oh, if we're not focusing on the ministry of word, we're doing mercy ministry, it's going to hurt the church's mission. Contrary to that, the church grew to the point where now the religious leaders of the synagogues 
are starting to rise up against Christ's disciples. One of these persecuted disciples is a gifted man by the name of Stephen, who in chapter 6 in Acts is, is called full of the Holy Spirit and grace and power. When you see someone who is full of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, this was a great and victorious leader. This was someone who was going to carry the people of God forward, and Stephen is given the honor of this distinction, being full of the Holy Spirit. And so at the end of chapter 6, we see this misinformation campaign set against Stephen. So they were lying about what he was teaching and lying about the views that he was representing. Um, just as an aside, if, if you ever want to derail a ministry, minister or a teacher of the gospel, just simply throw out misinformation about what he really believes and watch the chaos unfolding. Uh, it's a tale as old as time, and we see it here in chapter 6. And so Stephen is now brought before the high priest, you know, the judicial court of Jerusalem, and they're, they're called a rule on what he believes. And so all of chapter 7 is Stephen's speech against the religious leaders of Jerusalem for not understanding Jesus and not understanding his work and not understanding uh, the words that came before him. And so this is what leads to Stephen losing his life here in these seven verses from 54 to 60. The first written record of a disciple of Christ being a martyr. This is meant to bring about, the, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for the gospel to advance? You see, Luke, our author, is a careful writer. And this passage ends the ministry of Jerusalem and Judea with a sober truth of what it means to follow Christ. But also, what we often miss here, a hidden joy in this passage that gives us perspective. So we're going to focus on a couple of things here today. Um, three things. One, uh, what is the message of the martyr? Two, what is the persecution of the martyr? And three, uh, what is the Christ of the martyr? So uh, let's start with the, what is the message of the martyr? Why was Stephen fighting for his life here? In the verses that come before our passage, Stephen is outlining a history of the Old Testament to the high priest. That, that when you read it at first glance, it almost seems completely irrelevant to the discussion, but you have to remember of what he was being accused of. In chapter 6, he was being accused of speaking words against Moses, which is often used to describe the law, right, and God, against the law of God and, and, and by, by proxy, God's prophets, God's messengers, and that Jesus is in essence this religious terrorist in the minds of these Jewish leaders who want to destroy the temple. So, as we all know, misinformation travels faster than the truth. And a controversy surrounds Stephen to, point to, to the point where they are forcing Stephen to state, what do you believe about Scripture? First thing we see is that Stephen's message in these passages is rooted in God's words and not his own. Stephen is covered with the word of God and the redemptive story of salvation in those first 53 verses of chapter 7. So Stephen covers the entire Old Testament period of Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, the prophet's ministry, and he does so without compromising his message, and he doesn't pull any punches. Now, this is even more amazing when we consider both Stephen's background and the background of those interrogating him. Stephen being before the high priest, most scholars agree this is a judicial trial where Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, 
the highest court of authority for the Jews. They had a right in specific situations to put people to death. And more importantly, the intellectual and holiness pedigree of this particular group of religious leaders was, you know, sort of the cream of the crop. You see, these high priests had memorized the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. Who among us here can say that we have done that? They were faithful to the finest points of the law, to such a degree that we're being called a part of this high council is to be the best of the best. In short, no one should have known Scripture more thoroughly, more comprehensively, and lived so faithfully than this Sanhedrin. So who is Stephen? A Hellenistic Jew, outside of the camp of Jerusalem. A disciple of this guilty Jewish rabbi whose views were so radical that this Jewish rabbi had to be crucified. A Jew whose own disciples were a who's who of misfits, nobodies, lower class outcasts, religious zealots. So Stephen, standing before the Sanhedrin, telling them about Scripture, is almost like a little league first-year player you know, trying to teach a major league baseball how to swing a bat. But Stephen was no mere kid. He's full of the Spirit. He was saying to the high priests and the leaders that even though that they were the elevated to the status of highest authority and position in the Jewish world, they did not consider how they were rejecting the very same message that they were called to uphold and guard. The religious leaders believed, you see, that they were living in such accordance with God and the culture that they had created around them, that it prevented them from believing that they were actually, in fact, rejecting the very Messiah that they had been waiting for. And so Stephen's message would have been like a shockwave to them, as he said to them in our pre, uh, the verses prior to this passage, verses 51 to 53, that though they appeared religious, though they appeared pious, though they were venerated as faithful and given high positions of authority, they themselves did not respond in faith to the word of God. They themselves who were supposed to defend God's word were instead in grave violation against it. This reminds us of the gravity of the message of the gospel that we hold in our hands. You see, the message of the martyrs is one of disruption to the very idea of what seems right in our own eyes. And just like in the time of Judges in the Old Testament, people need to come back to God's word and ask themselves how they are following faithfully in its ways. True faithful disciples will call out the prevailing sins of our current generation in ways that demand repentance. And the response of the people of God from within should be one of running back to the word of God instead of how the Sanhedrin responded here, being enraged grinding their teeth, this, this sign of extreme anger and uncontrollable rage that they were being called out for their sins. So let's pause here. Uh, because this response from the Sanhedrin is not just for our opponents outside of the church. Remember, these are the people of God from within. This is Jerusalem and Judea. And to meditate and consider for ourselves how our response, when we are called out by the sins of Scripture, how do, how do we respond? We are prone not to listen. We are prone not to listen to those who would call us out from the outskirts. We might even be 
by all appearances, holy and good on the outside. But we don't maybe ask ourselves enough the question of whether or not we have been faithful to what God's word is telling us. And we run the risk of pursuing death of the very same people that are calling us to repentance. Church history is rife with these stories. In the uh, 16th century, a group of individuals were trying to come to terms with what Scripture was actually saying regarding its witness, and not just allowing the religious elite, but the common man to read Scripture and study it on their own. This was the Reformation. Many died defending this idea of sola scriptura, of the Word of God alone. And one of them you might be familiar with was a man by the name of William Tyndale. A British Bible scholar, he began to study the original Hebrew and Greek texts and translate them to English, forming the first real translation of the Bible in English to the masses. But as the popularity of his books grew, he was soon deemed a heretic by the religious order. His translations were condemned. His Bible was burned in public as a public warning to the signs of the danger of what happens when people try to read the Bible on their own. He was told repeatedly to recant his views, and he was sent into exile. He not only faced religious forces from within, but he also faces cultural forces around in England, the political forces around him. You see, the king of England uh, at the time, King Henry VIII, tried to use Tyndale's books to justify adultery. And Tyndale had a choice to make. Tyndale could have stood very close to political power, compromised the word of God, allowing Henry VIII to believe that the Bible was calling him to reject the message and twist God's word to say something that it wasn't saying. But Tyndale stood his ground on the very word of God that he risked his life translating. You see, Tyndale didn't simply just want people to read the Bible. He wanted them to live it, even going so far that he would give his own life for the word of God to be lived out. So he was hated by the broader global church, and he was hated by the cultural forces that tried to use him for political advantage. So he was jailed for this position. He was charged with heresy, a crime punishable by burning at the stake. Tyndale spent a year and a half held in prison, and for a year and a half, he was asked to recant his views. Instead, he used that time to translate more scripture. He eventually burned at the stake publicly in front of all those who thought he was a criminal. Tyndale, though, was interesting about Tyndale's last words. Was it, he wasn't done showing grace to those that would kill him for standing on scripture. Before Tyndale was hanged, and burned at the stake, he said in his final breath to this, which is really stunning, he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Tyndale created new words in the English language to accommodate the ideas that he saw while translating the Bible. So the next time that you read the word Passover, mercy seat, the phrase, let there be light, you have Tyndale to thank for that translation. Uh, but dear to Tyndale's heart, a phrase that he coined that seems so ordinary to us but speaks volumes to what he gave his life to was this phrase that he translated, the word of God which lives forever. The word of God which lives forever. Despite the religious forces that surrounded him and the institutional political forces that threatened his life, 
he was committed to the whole message of Scripture. This is the message of martyrdom. Christian, what about you? And it's this commitment to the message that what leads to our second point here today is what is the persecution of the martyr? The reality is that any time the church makes a call to be faithful to God's word, the reality is that opposition will come against it. Extreme, uncontrollable rage will amount to those who are following what God is commanding them. Look at the verbs used against Stephen here in these seven verses. They were enraged. They ground their teeth. They, they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. All because Stephen was calling them to show them why they were rejecting God's word. The reality is that when we expose the true nature of what we believe in all parts of Scripture, you know, not just the parts that people love to hear in God's word, but the parts that challenge one's idols, that challenges one idea of what it means to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ, to call people to see Jesus as the only way to salvation, to, to call people to the narrow pathway and the narrow gate. When we call people to that, there's not just going to be polite disagreement, is there? But alarming resistance by the people of God themselves in such a fashion that forces the Christian to ask themselves, am I ready to give my life to this by calling out the people of God for how they're sinning? But look how Stephen interprets this persecution. Look at Stephen's response. Look at verse 55. Stephen's eyes and heart were set where? In the chaos in front of him? No. His eyes were set heavenward. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You see, in the midst of persecution and sure death, the Christian's hope is not set upon the opinion of the crowd in front of you, but rather the glory of God that awaits you. This is telling for us as Christians today who are preparing for, for, uh, for, for time, what Scripture calls uh, the last days. Not just in our country, in the world at large, but the church even, turning in on itself, treating each other unfairly and unjustly. So here's some bad news for all of us here today. Um, you will be mischaracterized for what you believe. You will be called intolerant for saying that Jesus is Lord. You will be tried to be silenced from any discussion of religion and faith and the finer points of doctrine. You will be mocked for speaking truth and sharing the goodness and creativity of God. You will be laughed at. Your good deeds will be suspected for motives that you do not hold and that you do not share. You will find yourself at odds with the culture and the political forces around you. Scripture reminds us none of these things should surprise us, given what the early church and what Stephen is going through here. Jesus Christ comes into the world as a disruption to all powers and principalities, to every worldview, even within those in the established religious church, to every idol and passage. And what does Jesus proclaim? He proclaims that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes through the Father but through him. So did we think that there wasn't going to be any resistance? Did we think that this wasn't going to be difficult? Did we think that this wouldn't cost us anything at all? Scripture doesn't lie to us about this challenge, but instead offers us something to look for deeper in the disruption. To look beyond our circumstances and see a greater hope beyond the trial and the horror that stands right in front of us. 
But this doesn't mean that, you know, Stephen's sort of ignoring his grief or ignoring his suffering, ignoring his mourning, but it does mean that for Stephen there is a greater hope that Christ is there right with him. Sees the depths of what he is going through. And he stands in the midst of our persecution, of our agony and misunderstanding. He stands to vindicate us. If only we could look beyond our torment and see Jesus in the eye of the storm. How do we know this? What you might have missed in this particular verse, in verse 55, is the posture of Jesus as Stephen receives a heavenly vision. Now normally, when Scripture talks about Jesus in heaven, what posture is Jesus normally in? We say it all the time in the Apostles' Creed, right? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But notice what Stephen is seeing here. Jesus isn't sitting down on his heavenly throne. He is standing. So why is this significant? Uh, Commentators give two insights that might be helpful for us here today. The first is that Jesus' rise from the throne is one of address. It's one of meeting face to face. The king is ready to embrace Stephen and see him face to face. Let Stephen know, your time has come. You will be with me. The Son of Man being the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13-14. Christ is coming to meet his brother and welcome him home. So Jesus standing isn't just waiting for us passively. He's waiting to meet us, standing to meet us, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But the second insight of why Jesus stands is perhaps very revealing of our text here today. More than Jesus standing, readying himself to meet Stephen, Jesus is standing as the great judge, making this proclamation. The king rises to proclaim judgment on Stephen, and the judgment on Stephen is not guilty. Though the world may persecute you and condemn you to death, Jesus stands and declares, you are not guilty. Jesus is the one who receives Stephen's testimony of faith, where the Sanhedrin judged wrongly. Jesus is the great vindicator and representative of true justice, even when justice fails for Stephen in the temple courts. Stephen's heavenly vision gives Stephen the confidence to know that the only voice that matters is Jesus' voice. And so he's able to endure the rage that stands before him, the outrage that is poured against him. And he doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't meet outrage and aggression with outrage and aggression. Instead, he looks to Jesus and knows that Jesus has cleared him. Um, Stephen has full confidence that even if the people of God completely shuts out his voice, God will bring about justice for Stephen in this life or the next. Um, I got the opportunity to watch a lecture from um, the professor Alyssa Yukuko Weibrock, I know I have messed up that name, so I apologize, um, from the Elliott Society, who gave a lecture here in Maryland recently. She is the Associate Professor of Art and Art History at Covenant College, uh, the PCA's undergraduate school. Uh, she gave a lecture called Rupture as Invitation, When I highly recommend you, you, you watch it. It's, it's, it's wonderful to see how art gives us this principle of a Christ being with those who are in deep suffering, who are being persecuted. Uh, I am not an art buff, nor can I speak about this intelligently. Please talk to Victoria about that. Uh, but this lecture was so compelling because of the imagery that it invoked of a God who is greater than the desolation 
of the world around us. Uh, Alyssa pointed to the work of a man named A. Weiwei, um, who, called, who created an art piece called Straight, if we could have that up on the screen, uh, which at first glance doesn't look like much. Weiwei? Oh, wait, go back, go back. There you go, great, called Straight. Uh, if at first glance, this artwork doesn't look like much. It just looks like a bunch of used rebar on the ground with a crack in the pattern of an unstable floor. But the artist was calling for his audience to see something in this rupture. You see, on May 12, uh, 2008, a huge earthquake hit Sichuan, China. 85,000 people were killed. 4.8 million were left homeless. Uh, and tragically, numerous elementary schools collapsed. 5,000 students and teachers died. In a Chinese culture where there was a one-child policy, many families were left with basically an extinguished future. Well, it was tragic that the Chinese government did not investigate the earthquakes and the failures of the buildings that were so clearly present. They were suspiciously quiet. So Weiwei uh, initiated a citizen's investigation, and they realized that the schools were not built to code. Bribes allowed them to pass inspection for the collapsing buildings. So at great personal risk to himself, uh, A. Weiwei, the artist here, gathered the rebar from all these buildings. And over the next four years, re-straightened all the torqued metal, the mangled deformed metal, to create this piece. To represent the lives that had been lost. To give message and word to stand with those who were neglected by society, whose message went left unheard that should have protected them. And through this art piece, to vindicate them. To bring about them justice. So Alyssa Weibrock powerfully gives this picture of this art piece in question. The, the scavenged pieces of the earthquake were restored and changed, fundamentally scarred by the history that they carried. Uh, these bars can no longer be used to make buildings, and with it they carry the weight of those who were lost. So when you're looking at this piece, yes, it causes us to lament, but it also calls us to stand like Jesus stood with people who were devastated by the persecution of a state and a people that let them die. Alyssa's lecture has beautiful insight on this artwork, and she says this in this quote. Uh, if you can go skip two slides here. This quote here. As the enormity of the brokenness settles on us, God must become necessarily bigger to undo it. As active viewers with eyes of faith, we can redirect eyes weeping and add our voices in solidarity with the God who, ears, who hears. And may I add to Alyssa's quote, add our voices to a Jesus who stands. Persecution, you see, ultimately does not carry its weight. It does not win the day with Stephen, and it does not win the day with the church, and it does not win the day when injustice enters into our world. And for you today, who face many things in front of you, in your workplace, in your family, in your friends, in your home life, you are able to endure the persecution for standing on the message of God. You are able to lament. You are able to embrace hard things, difficult things. You can speak truth in difficult and resistant places because you know Christ is the great vindicator. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Even if the worst possible thing were to happen, you will meet Jesus face to face and he will stand to greet you. 
and enduring persecution, embracing lament, embracing the hard things. We give courage and strength for others to do the same. And this leads us to seeing our last point here today, and that is, what is the Christ, or I should say, who is the Christ of the martyrs? As Stephen's words share with the mob about the Christ that stands to vindicate him, in verse 55, the Sanhedrin have heard enough. They immediately enact judgment to stone Stephen for his belief. They don't even wait for the Roman court. They did so in the presence of the Pharisee who was in charge of persecuting Christians, a man by the name of Saul, who we'll get to later. And as Saul watches on, Stephen has two more statements before he dies. Two more statements that reveal who Stephen's confidence was placed on and whose life Stephen wanted to model. You see, Stephen's martyrdom is really just an echo of the martyr story of Jesus Christ, isn't it? And once you see all the parallels, you realize that Stephen's faithfulness was really just modeling his Savior. You see, Jesus was judged by the same Sanhedrin that called for Stephen's death. Jesus was talked about with lies and misinformation. Jesus used scripture to refute the highest and brightest minds, the holiest religious leaders of his day, this carpenter from Nazareth, who shows that it's not about your title, but about the word of God that is faithfully proclaimed. So Jesus saved his greatest rebukes from those who pretended to be the people of God, as Stephen does, rebuking them for not listening to the ones that God has sent. And Jesus on the cross, when dying to take the sins of us, which we richly deserve death and the eternal torment of hell for, in his final words, he says to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does Stephen say as he calls out to Jesus? Lord, receive my spirit. And most poignantly of all, at the moment of Stephen's death, Jesus' words on the cross are a faint echo here, isn't it? When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Stephen says to the Lord, what? Do not hold the sin against them. Even in the most painful moment of Jesus' life, Jesus looked with compassion to his oppressors, to his executors, and wants them to know true peace. And at the end of Stephen's life, he wants his enemies to know the same. A grace that was not extended to him is extended to the ones that killed him. The Christ of the martyrs, you see, is the Christ that echoes compassion unto death. Many misunderstand Stephen's martyrdom as a mere, just bold declaration of faith to an unruly crowd, seen as, a, as justifying name-calling against our religious opponents and throwing down scripture verses to prove it. But the end of verse 60 reminds us the context of Stephen's heart and his message, that if we do not have love towards our enemies, we could have the tongues of men and angels. We could have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith to remove mountains. But at the end of the day, the church as witnesses to the world must share the same kind of love and compassion for those, even those that want to ruin us. We pray for this. That we demonstrate, even in dying unjustly, that Jesus loves them as well. Jesus longs for them to still come in repentance. Like Tyndale, who prayed for his executioners. Like Elizabeth Elliot, 
going to evangelize the very people that killed her husband, the missionary Jim Elliott. Martin Luther King Jr., dying for the people who slandered and misunderstood him. Every great martyr is filled with a compassion for those who seek their own lives. So we ask ourselves here this question, and we'll end with this. Why does Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, end the ministry to Jerusalem and Judea with this story? Wouldn't it seem contrary to the entire program of the church and the advancement of the kingdom of God? Wouldn't that you know, sort of be this unattractional force of, hey, by the way, you, you could die for this. Uh, no. You see, Luke is being very intentional here. Luke gives us the reality of what the church must prepare itself to do if it is to go beyond the national boundaries of Israel and go to the ends of the earth. We have to ready ourselves to face all kinds of persecutions and suffering. We may have to embrace the fact that our government might not believe the same things that we believe and that Christians within that government might persecute us for pointing out that sin. We might be miscategorized and treated, mocked and spit on, or for some of us, we might even have to make the ultimate sacrifice for that belief. But in doing so, you see, we don't intentionally seek out martyrdom, but we're ready for it. We take up our cross to follow Jesus. You see, in this way, our suffering has a greater context than just mere grief. It causes us to look our eyes heavenward, just as Stephen did, to enter into the rupture and see that Christ is standing there with us in love, helping us to, as, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? Helping us to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope all things, and to endure all things. This is the love of Christ that was shed for us this is the message that we carry and have the responsibility of proclaiming to the world. And we follow Christ to the same mission of going to the ends of the earth. So let's pray together.